Welcome back, folks, to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robinson, and I are joined all the way from Brazil by Dr. Bruno Rasmussen. Bruno joins us on the podcast today to talk about the psychedelic ibogaine and its use in treating substance use disorders. Bruno is an internal medicine doc and a gastroenterologist who's been using ibogaine to treat substance use disorders for the last 20 years down in Brazil. Bruno helps us explore the ancient origins and uses of ibogaine, how it's been used for rites of passage and healing. We discuss how ibogaine treatment is uh, used today for substance use disorders. Bruno talks to us about what the ibogaine experience is like and much, much more. I want to thank those of you who have left us reviews on platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, those of you who comment on the YouTube videos, like the videos, subscribe to the channel. All those things really help us. If you haven't left a review yet and you like the show, go for it. We could use the good PR and I'm sure you could use the good karma. It's a win-win situation. Without further ado, I bring you our conversation with Dr. Bruno Rasmussen. Welcome back, everybody. Reed and I are here and excited to have Bruno Rasmussen on the podcast today to talk about the miraculous medicine that is ibogaine. Um, Reed and I have been meaning to do a podcast dedicated to this medicine, but uh, admittedly, we are not ibogaine experts. So we thought we'd bring somebody on who uh, who is an ibogaine expert, somebody who has experience with it. So thank you, Bruno, for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. Would you mind just introducing yourself to our audience? Okay, I'm Bruno Rasmussen. I'm a medical doctor. I live and work in Brazil. And I work with Ibogaine for the last 28 years. I have seen legally here in Brazil. In Brazil, it's legal to do Ibogaine treatments. And I have seen more than 2,000 treatments since 1994. I, I have uh, known Ibogaine because a person very close to me did the treatment in 1994 and outside Brazil, and I was very impressed by his reaction. So I, I started to suggest people that I, that I was uh, treating at, the, at my private office. Uh, officially, I'm a gastroenterologist, but since I started working with ibogaine, it catched my my life. It was very more gratifying to work with ibogaine than with normal medicines because it really works. It really gives you a sense of doing something to to help people. Um, and I start uh, suggesting people to do it, and we discovered that it was legal to import it here in Brazil. Uh, our health agency uh, is, uh, is called Anvisa. It's the FDA of Brazil. And it allows uh, us to import it and to use it since we do it in a patient-by-patient -patient basis. I mean, we need to import the, the medicine to be used uh, to that patient that we, we want to treat. We cannot uh, buy a lot of doses and have it at the hospital, for example. We need to buy it each time a patient wants to, to be treated. 
uh, here uh, I live in the state of Sao Paulo, uh, and here in the state of Sao Paulo, uh, there is a, that there are some regulations uh, that make it uh, mandatory to do ibogaine treatments in a hospital. I work in a public hospital, and we are not, let's say, underground providers. We are above ground providers. I don't know if this word exists in English, but it, this is what we do. Yeah, we do mm-hmm. we do it uh, officially, and it's very interesting to to work with ibogaine. It's very interesting because it really helps people, and people uh, have uh, people sometimes are afraid of. Ibogaine, because if, if there are, are stories about ibogaine, but if you do it properly, if you follow the protocol, it's very safe to to do. Uh, I never seen a complication in all these years. Never have fatalities or complications or arrhythmias or things like that. And I think that the reason of this is why we see ibogaine like. Uh, it was a minor uh, surgery, surg- uh, surgery uh, a minor procedure. We do a lot of tests before we do. We take all the the measures to to have the patient in a good condition, a good clinical condition before doing ibogaine. So I'm sure that that's why we have never uh, never had a, a complication in 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 treating using ibogaine. So yeah, it sounds like you've you approached the medicine. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Reed. Oh no, uh, there's a delay. You go for it, Steve. Finish your thought. I was just reflecting on what Bruno said uh, in the introduction here, like um, approaching the medicine with all the clinical caution that you would any procedure, any medical procedure, right, minor or otherwise, where you're screening patients, making sure that uh, if there are any contraindications that those are addressed. But what I'm hearing you say, Bruno, is that, um, you know, in all of the, the thousands of Ibogaine treatments that you've administered, um, that it's been safe and generally effective. Exactly, exactly. We Ibogaine is a traditional medicine from Africa, and we respect the traditional medicine, the traditional healers. But in, in, the, in the medical context, we must be very rigorous about that. Uh, so we really approach it as a, a medicine, as a, a treatment. We, as I mentioned, we do in a hospital with all the, with all the uh, examinations, the, the lab tests, and and a and a and a team of doctors and nurses and everything. We monitor, we monitorize the patients. We follow uh, all the time what's happening. We stay there with the patient all the time. So I think this is the explanation of the reason that we never see complications in, in the treatment. And we have a good, uh, a good uh, success rate, let's say. We are used to treat uh, more stimulants addiction than opiates addiction. In, in Brazil, there is not uh, too much... Uh, opiates being used you you can see some people using opiates but the majority of the people that have problems that have a problematic use 
of drugs are using or cocaine or crack cocaine. So our experience is mainly with that. But from time to time, we receive patients coming from the United States uh, to be treated here because I think because of the, let's say, the legality of that, some people feel more comfortable of doing it legally. Uh, so they came here to be treated and the patient, the patients, the majority of the patients that come from abroad, they are opiates users. So we are used to work with it, but the majority of the patients that we treat are stimulants uh, patients. So Bruno, I remember when we had uh, a meeting a little while ago talking about what it might look like to send some uh, substance use clients who are struggling with some of these things your way down to Brazil. And I found it fascinating to hear about your process. I mean, we know we know how the medical detox works here and, you know, and, and we do some kinds of psychedelic assisted psychotherapies. Um, so there's some similarities, but I'm wondering if um, if this is how it, how it goes, if I understood that right. Like if someone comes to you on for opiate treatment um, on suboxone they need to switch to something else first methadone they need to switch and you'll often uh, have people come and withdraw there with you so they're because ibogaine works best when you're in the early stages of withdrawal symptoms is that right Exactly. Uh, and an uh, uh, important thing is that uh, ibogaine uh, makes opiates more toxic to the system, to the body. So it's important to, to have the less possible opiates circulating when you take ibogaine. But it's very difficult to ask for a patient that is addicted to, to opiates to stop using opiates. That, that's exactly the, the problem. So what mm -hmm. we do is, first of all, switch a long uh, half-life opiate, like methadone, for example, to a short-acting opiate, like morphine, for example. It's the first mm -hmm. step because although it may seem that the patient is using more opiates because with methadone he can use once a day and if he's doing morphine he can he must use three four five times a day what happens is that morphine is going out of the body very quickly so what we do is try to switch these medicines uh, while uh, still in the United States, he's still outside Brazil. And when the patient arrives here, he is already using morphine and he stays here for a day or two using morphine. And in the night before uh, taking ibogaine, we ask the patient to stop using morphine. Uh, after some hours during the night, he starts feeling withdrawals. We... Uh, we receive the patient at the hospital very early in the morning and he is uh, uh, feeling withdrawals. We can see the withdrawals. You can see all the symptoms of the, of the withdrawals, like the nose uh, running and chilling and things like that. And at this moment, what this means? This means that if you, the patient is feeling withdrawals, it means that he has not a lot of opiates circulating. So it's, it seems that it's safe, safe to take ibogaine at this moment. So this is what we do. We give ibogaine at this moment. And it's interesting because uh, a long time before 
the, the let's say the, the, the effects of ibogaine start, uh, the withdrawal goes away because ibogaine interacts with a lot of receptors in the brain, including some opiates receptors. So when ibogaine uh, fits, uh, connects with the receptors of opiates, the withdrawal disappears. And after that, some minutes or half an hour or an hour after that, the patients uh, uh, start feeling the traditional uh, effects of ibogaine. But the withdrawal is is gone. Uh, uh, before of, of everything, uh, the withdrawal is gone. So this makes the detoxification the, 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 uh, more comfortable than the traditional detoxification. Oh, that's fascinating. And and let me know if this is correct. I've read that uh, ibogaine, um, as the shorter acting metabolite compared to noribogaine, ibogaine is more helping more with the detoxification process. But then noribogaine, the longer acting one, is more what continues to work beyond that at uh, recovery. Is that is that accurate in your opinion? Yes, it's exactly that. What happens you when you took ibogaine? When you take ibogaine, uh, ibogaine is transformed, is changed to metabolize it to noribogaine in the liver, and uh, ibogaine and noribogaine goes to the brain. They go to the brain and they do the effects. But noribogaine has an attraction to fat tissues, so ibogaine, so noribogaine starts to be the, the to to be deposited uh, they 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 link uh, noribogaine links to the fat tissue in the body in the brain in 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 in, 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 in between the the organs in in the belly so uh, when you uh, and 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 ibogaine is is going uh, is 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 uh, eliminated by the kidney, but the noribogaine stays in the system, linked to the attached, let's say, to the fatty tissue, and is released uh, a little by little. So this explains why patients sometimes refer feeling the action of ibogaine weeks after taking it, mm. is because the ibogaine itself is gone, but the noribogaine, its metabolite, it's still circulating in very small amounts, but it's still circulating. This explains the long-lasting effects of, of ibogaine. Oh, fascinating. And so I think you were talking about how you'd switch to a shorter-acting opiate from other longer-acting ones. And I think you've mentioned before that if someone's on cocaine or crack, they need to get off it for a certain number of days or a month before. Is that right? Yes, it's right because uh, it's a, 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 there are different effects of these drugs, and one of the effects of cocaine or crack cocaine and other stimulants is that when you stop using it, you have bradycardia. Your heart rate mm. uh, goes lower than the normal, and this is because a phenomena called the KT prolongation. is a thing that you see in the AKG. You can see that a part of the EKG, which is the KT interval, it's uh, 
uh, it's more it's taking more time to to happen let's say so uh, this uh, reflects what's happening in the body that is that is the bradycardia the the heart rate is slower than the normal it's okay it's not a problem and when you are using cocaine and you stop using cocaine this always happens, but the person doesn't uh, doesn't feel it he cannot uh, uh, feel that this is happening, but uh, for, uh, it's a coincidence. But ibogaine uh, lowers the uh, heart rate too. It causes bradycardia too. It makes it causes a KT prolongation and KT interval prolongation too. So if you uh, sum the, this effect, if you do the the two things, if you give ibogaine in a moment that the person has recently stopped cocaine or crack cocaine and uh, the person is still under this KT interval prolongation effect, you can have a significant bradycardia and after that you can have a, a cardiac arrhythmia that it's called torsade de pontes uh, and this is potentially dangerous. So uh, to make the ibogaine treatment more safe possible, we ask the patient to stop using cocaine or crack cocaine for four weeks before taking ibogaine. When you say that, people feel strange because they say, why, but I'm talking, I'm talking about taking ibogaine to stop using cocaine and you are asking me to stop cocaine mm -hmm. first of all. Yes, because it's common for us to see patients that are using cocaine or crack cocaine and they tell us that from time to time, they stay two months uh, uh, abstinent, they stay uh, three months without using, even not being in a hospital or, or in a clinic, they can manage to, to be a long time without using it. So this is what we do. We ask for the collaboration of the patient to arrive here, uh, uh, let's say, uh, clean of all of these the substances to ensure that the treatment will be safe. This is one, uh, let's say, a trick that we use to make the treatment safer. And this is why we never see complications here, because we take this, yeah. this care. So this is an important thing, because only, uh, only really motivated people uh, agree in, in doing this and in... Uh, taking this time and doing this sacrifice, we, we understand that it's a sacrifice. And it's another thing that it's important. People arriving here, uh, being uh, out of cocaine or from crack cocaine for a month, for four weeks, they arrive here with clear minds and they can understand better the effects of ibogaine, the, 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 re the reactions that they have are more strong than people that use it few year few days before. But with opiate patients, as I mentioned it before, it's impossible. It's it's very uh, complicated for our opiate uh, per, uh, patient to to stay away from opiates for hours. Um, so for a, a week or two weeks or three weeks will be impossible. So that's why we, we do the way I mentioned it. We wait until the moment that the patient is feeling uncomfortable because 
of the withdrawal and we start the treatment, even knowing that uh, there is some opiates circulating, circulating, mm -hmm. but uh, it works. If you do this with care, it works. Let's talk about what happens um, during the experience. I'm so curious, having never experienced Ibogaine myself yet. Um, so you s say someone comes in on opiates, they successfully switch to a shorter acting, they take their last dose at night, they go to sleep. Yeah. If they can sleep, they wake up early. They have some, they're starting to have withdrawal symptoms. They come to see you in the hospital. They give, uh, they get a dose of Ibogaine. Maybe you can walk us through what it's like. What's the set and setting? How is Ibogaine given? Is it a capsule? Like, how long does it take to kick in, and then what happens? Okay. Yeah, so the patient arrives at the hospital. We ask them not to eat anything in the morning. They arrive with the empty stomach. This helps because it makes the absorption of ibogaine quicker, and so we, uh, we can be sure that the patient will not vomit the ibogaine. Uh, <clears throat> so <clears throat> the patient arrives at the hospital. He stays in a room uh, that we have in the hospital that has, uh, he stays alone in the room with no other patients, only him or her. And we stay in a room that is connected to the, the place where the patient is at bed, but we don't stay inside the room to leave the patient uh, have his privacy, but we are there three met meters away, and we give ibogaine in a doses that is 15 milligrams per kilogram uh, of pure ibogaine to a patient that is using stimulants, cocaine or crack cocaine, and 20 milligrams per kilogram to an opiate patient because uh, the, the opiate patient, as he has opiates in a little amount but still circulating he's a little more resistant to the medicine so we need to use a, a little uh, a, do a dose that it's it's a little bigger uh, it's it, we use capsules it's capsules containing a powder that is ibogaine uh, you could use it the powder mix it in water and drink but it's very bitter it's a very bitter taste so people start vomiting. So you put it, we put it in capsules to avoid this, to try to, to let's say, to hide this, this taste. Um, and after that, it takes a little time to start working because ibogaine, as I mentioned, it needs to go through the liver and being transformed in our ibogaine and go into the brain. So around one hour after taking ibogaine, uh, the, the person enters in the first phase. The effects of ibogaine, they go through three different phases. The first phase is what we call uh, in a specific symptoms phase. The patient start, uh, starts to feel that is some, something is happening, but he cannot explain what's happening. It seems that the walls is, are different. He feels that, that the, the arms and the legs are are a little dumb and they they feel a, a heat in the chest a heat uh, uh, in the back they can hear a buzz in the in the ear in the ears and it's not a a buzz a continuous buzz but it's something like 
It looks like there's some a motorcycle or a machine going around the room. It's interesting because although we explain this to the patients, most of the patients get off the, the bed and go to the window to see what's, what's that motorcycle going. And after that, this lasts for 15, 20 minutes. After that, the patient goes to the second phase. It's the most uh, characteristic phase of ibogaine is the phase, the phase of the uh, thoughts uh, flooding. The thoughts flooding. A lot of thoughts. The the, the pa patients start to to think very quickly. A lot of thoughts running into his consciousness, and he can't even uh, pay attention to the thoughts because when one thought arrives and he starts paying attention to that thought, the thought goes away and another thought uh, uh, takes place. And this starts happening very quickly. One day in the future, if one of you take Ibogaine, we will remember me doing this. It's exactly what happens. The thoughts, a lot of thoughts. And um, after some time, after the patient gets used to this situation, he starts uh, noting that a lot of these thoughts, not all of them, but a lot of them are memories, are remembrances of the past. Uh, and normally they can remember uh, from anything from the past, but the most of the memories are from the childhood and from the, the teenager uh, time uh, and uh, not in a chronological uh, presentation. So, so they remember a thing that happened with six years old. After that, a thing that happened with four years old, a thing that happened last week, a thing that happened with 10 years old. And for 80% of the patients, these memories, these remembrances are so uh, so sharp, they are so defined that they can see the memories. Uh, when they are with eyes closed, it appears a screen in, in this black curtain that forms, that appears a screen. And in this screen is, uh, let's say, broadcasting. I don't know if the word is correct, but it's projected mm -hmm. a scene. This memory is being projected in in colors, like a TV screen, in colors, and in slow motion. The, the scene uh, presents in a small, uh, slow motion, and experienced patients, experienced with psychedelic, I mean, they can even control these images. They mm. can ask the images to go uh, back like, like a rewind, and they can ask the images to go forward. And they start to recognize things. They see the images. The most of the patients, they see the images, uh, the images like they had put a camera in the forehead and they filmed it when it happened years ago. So it's uh, it's a first person view. It's uh, uh, it's not it's not common for people to have the sensation that they are floating in the ceiling and seeing the scene from above. They see what they recorded 
uh, when did that happen? Mm. As I always say to the patients, that we are the cameraman of our lives. So they see what they mm. recorded at that moment. Uh, so uh, they cannot see what they didn't record it. So if they are seeing a scene and after that uh, and uh, behind that scene, uh, there's a door, they will never see what is inside that door unless uh, in that moment in the past someone had opened that door and they saw it if they if the door uh, stayed closed they cannot see what is inside the door so they see uh let's say a recording of uh, things that happened in their lives this goes this takes around six to eight hours at and in while this happens the pa patient feels drowsiness and they feel nauseated sometimes they can vomit they feel some tremors in the extremities and when they open they are their eyes they see nothing they seem to feel uh, almost normal, but when they close their, their eyes, they start to see in the images again. And after six to eight hours, mm -hmm. these screens start to appear, but with no images uh, appearing. They stay, let's say, blank. And after one hour after that, one hour and a half, the screens disappear. The thoughts start to run in the normal normal uh, speed and the patient enters the third phase the third phase is what we call the question question and answers phase the patient mm -hmm. starts to remember what they remember before in the second phase they start to think about it they normally get very impressed with it because they remember things that were uh, I don't know the term in English, but really, really uh, old things, antique things, things that sometimes happened with three years old, four years old, or things that they are not so uh, in the past, but they didn't pay pay attention to that situation. So they suddenly they they see the situation that they uh, had forgotten, uh, and they start thinking about. The, that things that they remembered and they start to have insights they start to suddenly understand things that they weren't understanding and normally things that are important for their lives and and related to their problems and to the situations they are dealing with uh, relationships and things in the in the work um, it's it's difficult to give examples because it's a lot uh, uh, individual uh, reactions and each patient has his her story so but what happens is that uh, expansion of consciousness and the patient uh, start to have insights and uh, normally the patients in this first night they don't sleep because ibogaine is very stimulant and because it seems that ibogaine uh, mimetizes let's say the the dream dreaming so it, it seems that the brain uh, thinks that the patient sleeped hours a lot of hours during the day because he was dreaming so he has not uh, he have not uh, need to sleep during the night but during the first night 
uh, all the time they stay at bed and having these insights, these insights, these thoughts, understanding things about their lives, about their problems, and understanding what they are doing, that it's good for them and they must uh, continue to do that, understanding things that they are doing that they are not so good for their lives, so they, it would be better if they change a little, a little the, the, the path mm. they are going through. Um, and then the next day, they are very tired. Uh, everything uh, disappears. From time to time, they may have some insights, but normally they are tired with a little drowsiness, drowsiness a little nausea, but we release them from the hospital if they are okay. And they, we ask them to rest for one day or two. But normally, uh, the, the good health patient, the healthy patient, uh, normally in the afternoon after being released from the hospital, they are totally okay. They are feeling uh, good. They are normally very happy. Uh, probably because ibogaine normalizes the amount of neurotransmitters in the brain, serotonin, dopamine, and others. And so they are feeling very well, very happy. And this is the good thing about ibogaine. This uh, lasts, these reactions, they last for months after taking ibogaine because they are not related to the effect of ibogaine itself. Uh, like it was an euphoria, for example, if you take uh, methamphetamine, for example, and, uh, and when you, when your body uh, eliminates the methamphetamine, you start to feel the opposite of euphoria. Ibogaine uh, releases in the brain the GDNF, the glial cell derivated neurotrophic factor. It's a substance that promotes connection between neurons, promotes new synapses uh, to be formed. So this is a thing that lasts because we don't need ibogaine anymore. The connections already happened. The connections are already working properly. So we don't need more substances to, to stay, to feel good. So that's the moment when the patient makes a decision. I'm feeling good. I don't need anything outside me to feel good, I, I will not use drugs anymore. If it's a motivated patient, because if it's not a motivated patient, sometimes it happens. If it's a patient that it's going, uh, it's undergoing ibogaine treatment because someone is asking him or her or forcing him or her, normally this happens, the craving goes away, but the patient doesn't stop using drugs because he wants to to use. It's a very uh, addiction is a very complex issue. It's not so simple. But what we see is that if the patient really wants to quit, but he or her is having difficulty to quit because of the cravings and of the withdrawals, taking ibogaine will solve the problem because the withdrawal will go away, the craving will go away. But uh, sometimes this not happening because there are more profound issues that must be addressed. So that's why mm -hmm. we think uh, that ibogaine, we treat ibogaine like uh, a, a psychotherapy facilitator. We don't yeah. think that ibogaine is a miracle 
miracle drug and will solve all the problems by itself. It will help the psychotherapy and the psychotherapist to do their work, uh, but it will really uh, help because the, 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 the person has more clarity after Ibogaine of what is happening with, with him or with her. Amazing. Well, sign me up. Uh, I, I would like to go into this eyes opened uh, camera review of all the memories of my life where I can control it and my thoughts are going wild. So uh, that brings up a, a real question, though. Do people do this for fun? I read this case report uh, that said, I wouldn't recommend I began to someone who's trying to have fun. If you want your body to explode into a thousand pieces and rebuild itself, into something beautiful, then yeah, but don't expect it to be pleasant. Uh, would you agree yes. with it being difficult for nearly everyone? Yes, it's not uh, difficult from, for, for everyone. It depends on what we have inside us. Uh, so from mm -hmm. some people, it's a very difficult experience with bad memories and things like that. But for yeah. the most of the people, it's not uh, a bad experience and the things that come up to the consciousness consciousness uh, are good things are good memories but it's mm -hmm. uncomfortable because you have nausea you have a, a bad feeling you feel uncomfortable so interesting when we finish the treatment and the patient will be released from the hospital uh, the most of them say oh i like it ibogaine i feel that it will help me but I will never want to take it again because it's very mm -hmm. uncomfort uncomfortable. And there's no uh, cases of addiction to ibogaine related in the medical literature exactly because of that. It's not uh, a, a, a pleasant experience. It's interesting. It's been, uh, it it uh, brings mm -hmm. you benefits, but it's not pleasant. It's uncomfortable. And sometimes... Patients ask us to stop the experience. They say, do you have a, a shot that you can give me, a medicine that you can give me to stop this feeling because I'm not dealing well with that? Most of the times, the patients that ask that are patients that are not properly prepared for the experience. Is that patient that are not uh, taking seriously the psychotherapy and things like that? So when they arrive, they have no idea, and they they have no the exact <laughs> idea of what will happen. So they get scared with the memories and things like that. But the what the what we do is to try to calm down the patient, to stay with them, to be there for them, and when they calm down, uh, they goes into another let's say another part of the experience and other memories came came up uh, and, and they can go uh, and leave these bad memories uh, behind and and go forward steve are you in should we do an episode down in brazil sign me up man uh I don't, uh, I don't have any, <laughs> any addictions to any substances. I, I'm, I wonder what the Ibogaine experience would be like for somebody who maybe doesn't have a substance use disorder, but has post-traumatic stress disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder. Is, is Ibogaine used to treat other psychiatric conditions besides substance use disorders? Yes, it can be used, but in the day by day, we don't use it uh, to other issues because uh, this is the problem of regulation 
and we see that uh, on Visa, for example, they accept very well the fact that we are using it to addiction because there are no other options to do it. They are not good medicines to do it. But for other issues like depression, like uh, PTSD and things like that, we know that ibogaine works. Sometimes people ask us to do it for depression and it works very well. But as we have not uh, published papers about that, research about that, we try not to do that. We try to stay uh, doing only addiction treatments because this is a treatment that we can, we have some evidences that it works. We have the experience and it's uh, acceptable by the government, by the regulatory agencies. So we stay with addiction, but it works very well with depression, works very well with uh, obsessive compulsive disorders. Uh, That's it. Uh, Let's say uh, things that um, are caused by a, 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 an imbalance, a disbalance, it's that correct, a disbalance of the neurotransmitters. So ibogaine corrects the neurotransmitters balance, so it's okay. <clears throat> and it seems, we need more research to that, but it seems that ibogaine works, works with Parkinson disease too. But this mm. need more research. Uh, even for addiction, we need more research to understand better its ways of action, under, understand better uh, the moment, the, the ideal moment to, to do it. But as addiction is a very complicated uh, problem to treat with other medicines, we feel that we are uh, doing the right thing using it, even with having all the, the papers yeah. done. Because if you wait all the research to be done, we, we will never do the treatment because we'll never be satisfied with the research. There will be always some doubts that we will have. True. You know, um, I'd, I'd love to study it for some of those other things one day, including eating disorders. Like anecdotally, I've heard people who have reported healing or uh, attaining recovery from their eating disorder with the help of Ibogaine. But but one thing I wanted to um, just bring up as a little tangent, because I found it so interesting when I heard the the modern history of Ibogaine uh, from uh, it was a conversation with Hamilton Morris. Um, and I didn't really appreciate this fully before, but but uh, Hamilton, of course, knows a lot of things about a lot of medicines, including some fun historical tidbits. But he pointed out how it was in the 60s when this kid, a 19-year-old in New York, Howard Lotsoff, happened to be friends with a chemist. He was hooked on heroin, but he was actually just asking for a psychedelic. And the only psychedelic the chemist had was Ibogaine. So he's like, here, try this. It'll send you on a trip. Um, But then while taking it for a trip, he ended up just coincidentally losing his craving for heroin. But, But not only losing it, like the way he conceptualized it changed. He he started to think of heroin as like a symbol of death, something that he did not want, definitely did not want to take into his body. So then he gave it to six of his friends who were addicted to heroin as well. And five of them immediately quit. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, fascinating how these things emerge like from um, 
you know, just anecdotally like that. And then we get into the research, of course, and, and uh, take it from there. Exactly. I met Howard Lotsoff. Yeah, I, uh, he was a friend of mine. I was very honored oh, to be cool. his friend. And in the beginning of my work here, he helped me a lot. In the beginning, we used it to connect by Skype. And he helped me when I had some doubt cool. how to deal with situations. He died, he died in 2010, I think in January of 2010. And uh, one of the people uh, that he gave Ibogaine was her wife, Norma Lotsov, who is alive until mm -hmm. now. Uh, uh, coincidentally, at this moment, she is at a, a meeting, an Ibogaine meeting in, in Amsterdam. It's happening at the same time that we are talking now. And cool. exactly what this happened. And he was totally amazed what Ibogaine, with what yeah. Ibogaine did with him because suddenly, 24, 24 hours mm -hmm. after taking it, he was not feeling craving anymore. He was not feeling withdrawals anymore. But it took almost three dec decades to find someone to, to start researching it uh, in United United States, and until now, it's difficult to find someone to research ibogaine in United States because it's a scheduled one substance. Mm -hmm. So people are afraid of working with that, and it's difficult. It's very bureaucratic to work with that. But this this is the difference from Brazil. In Brazil, it's not forbidden. It's not even scheduled. We have a scheduled uh, uh, method that goes from A to F, with F being the most problematic substance, let's say. And uh, sorry, the opposite. A is being the most uh, uh, problematic substance. And Ibogaine, it's not uh, scheduled in any of the, the, the categories from A to F. So it's okay to use Ibogaine. It's important to say that Ibogaine, it's not scheduled in Brazil and not scheduled by the United Nations. Uh, control, um, so it's easier for us to import it and to use it. There are some resistance, it's true, and main, the main resistance came from the comes from comes from clinics that work with addiction because they cannot understand why they you will use ibogaine and have the patient in a inpatient basis for 24 hours when they can have them in an inpatient basis for nine months. So it's a commercial problem. They, they mm. see the advantages of Ibogaine, but they see disadvantages of Ibogaine because of the quickly answer that Ibogaine uh, evokes. So this is our problem uh, here. It's not a regulation problem, but a political problem because some people don't like the good effect of ibogaine. But this is normal. And uh, every time in the history of the world, when you come with a new thing, a new method, the people that are uh, working with the old method, they don't like. I'm sure that when they invented the cars, uh, people that work it with that horse-powered uh, uh -huh. transportations, I don't know the name, they probably don't feel, didn't feel happy, but it's normal. It's the normal evolution of science. 
So, and, and I always say that, okay, you don't want us to, to use our board game. So what will we do with this lot of kids and people using drugs and wanting to get out of drugs? Because if a, peop- a person is using drugs, but they want to stay on drugs, it's okay. It's a decision that an adult can have. But when people want to go out, to stay out, and they are not uh being succeed in that because it's complicated because the drugs really yeah. uh, makes a change in their brain so we must be there for them and help them to to get out and if ibogaine is a thing that works and we can prove that it works uh, and it's safe uh, if we do it the proper way uh, following the the proper protocol why don't we why can't we use that why can't we we do that so that's the explanation this is this is are the 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 things let's say that we we tell people we talk with the government and we talk with the regulation people and they understand when we explain they understand and they even help us in promoting that uh, and using that what we are trying to do is to uh, do a phase two slash three uh, research here to send to our fda Anvisa, and Anvisa accepting this the Anvisa will register ibogaine they will recognize it as a medicine this will allow us to import it with more uh, with less bureaucracy than today and it will drop the cost and it will be more accessible to to people and we have here in brazil uh, uh, let's say uh, a good reception uh and visa is open to to talk about that and to help us uh, since we do it exactly the way they want to do we we are working with Anvisa in a, in a way quite similar to MAPS, uh, with, uh, like MAPS is acting with MDMA, respecting totally the FDA uh, regulations to make it approval. It's exactly what we are doing here with Ibogaine. Well, that's amazing uh, that, that you had uh, met uh, Howard and his wife. Um, you know, I, I found it so inspiring to look at his story, how he started a nonprofit named after his grandmother. He got a, uh, what, a drug company to make it for a while. Um, and then got a, a Swiss, who was it? A Swiss or Dutch psychiatrist, Jan Bastians, who had done work with LSD and Holocaust survivors to uh, do some research on it. But one one piece of the history I I don't really kind of understand is Ibogaine for a time was um, sold in France under the brand name Lambarine, like in these like eight milligram tablets. What was it for then? Do you know? Yes. What happens, what happens is that Ibogaine in very, very micro doses like that, eight milligrams. Remember that I mentioned it, that we use around 20 mm-hmm. milligrams per kilogram to treat yeah. heroin addiction, for example. But in a dose, in a capsule with 8 milligram, it has an energetic effect, like a booster of caffeine, for example, like an energetic, wow. energetic drink. So, and <laughs> as France was the country that colonized Gabon, where is the oh, yeah. main 
main source of the plant, the Tabernanti Boga plant, uh, which uh, Ibogaine came from. Uh, they yeah. had uh, influence, they had uh, this contact, and they heard that people in the, in the forest were using small amounts of Ibogaine to get energetic. They started to produce Lumberan, which was an energetic Uh, it was a tonic medication and it was sold mm. in drugstores without medical prescription and people were using it to study. They were using it like people use, today use Ritalin or this okay. stimulant. People were using it to study and to, to stay a little more time without eating and things like that. But what happened was that the French a team of uh, snow skiing, they use it ibogaine uh, as a, a stimulant to, to the competition, to the, to the Winter Olympics. And the government uh, detected that. And the reaction of the government was instead of regulating it, uh, forbidding it. It was, uh, I think that they thought it were more, more practical and more and easier to forbidden than to regulate. So Lumberan disappeared from the, from the market. But uh, there are people that uh, benefit from taking this small amounts of fibrogain daily. People that have depression, people that have Parkinson's mm. disease, they benefit from taking this microdose every day for uh, 60 days or 90 days. I have seen patients taking this small amounts every day with depression, for example. I, uh, I and some friends, we published a paper about that, about depression in a bipolar patient mm. that we treated with uh, this small amount of fibrogen and worked very well. So we need more research to understand how this works and why this works and to, as I said, to make this medicine uh, available to, to, to more people. Mm, amazing. Well, Steve, I've been hogging the mic because I find this so fascinating. What do you have from your end? Any curiosities? I know time is whizzing by. Yeah, we're coming to the end of, uh, of the hour we set aside. Um, Bruno, I'm, I'm curious, do you, we've, we've been talking about primarily um, opiate and stimulant addictions. I've heard that a lot of folks who uh, have addictions to alcohol also find abogaine treatment very, very useful. Do you have any experience with uh, alcohol abuse disorder patients and ibogaine? Yes, yes. We treat patients with alcohol abuse disorder and it works very well too. Uh, the only detail is that uh, as alcohol is toxic to the liver, we have to pay a little more attention in the situation of the liver of this patient because ibogaine will be metabolized in the liver. So the liver must not be completely destroyed because we need at least 50% of the liver function to be sure that ibogaine will be transformed and will metabolize, metabolize it in nor ibogaine for the, the treatment to work. And it works too with uh, non-chemical addictions like 
uh, eating disorders, on people that have a compulsion compulsion to 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 gambling or to buying or sexual confusion with some from time to time we treat people with these problems. And interestingly, uh, the thing that ibogaine works not so so as good as the other things is smoking. Uh, ibogaine is not so good to treat uh, tobacco tobacco smoking. It's not so so good. So uh, when a person uh, seeks for ibogaine treatment for smoking, we normally we try to do uh, other treatments, more conventional treatments before taking ibogaine because we see that only around 50% of the persons uh, quit smoking, and we uh, we, we did a, a retrospective study some years ago with ibogaine here, uh, with alcohol, cocaine, and crack cocaine, and we achieved a seventy-two percent result efficacy with a single dose of of ibogaine. So it's uh, uh, comparing to the normal treatments, it's very different. So that's why ibogaine uh, really has its place in the in the treatment of of addiction. It really works, and for some people, it works very very good, uh, very well. Uh, it's not uncommon for me to uh, suddenly receive a message from a patient saying things like that. Hi, Bruno. Today I'm. It's uh, I'm uh, it's my ibogaine birthday. I uh, ten years ago I was uh, with you in, in, in doing the treatment, and ten years after I'm still okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, ibogaine, and thanks to ibogaine, I'm doing nothing. I'm only facilitating the the access to ibogaine and taking care of the patients during the ibogaine effect. What does the the thing is ibogaine? Ibogaine is really a a great molecule. And it's, it needs a lot more study because I think it has a lot of possibilities to, for us to discover. You mentioned ancient use uh, and how that, um, you know, the indigenous tribes in Gabon were using microdoses for the stimulating effect. Did they, did they use bigger doses? Uh, and if so, what for? Yes, uh -huh. they, there are two situations in Gabon where they use ibogaine. The traditional situation is they have a religion uh, called Biwiti, and this Biwiti, uh, they believe that ibogaine changes uh, young people, uh, teenagers, in adults. So they use it when a teenager reaches 17 years old. They, they have a big party, uh, with uh, high doses of ibogaine consumption. Um, we don't know exactly yeah. the doses because they use ibogaine uh, in the root uh, uh, in, in the root form, uh, so we cannot measure how much they are taking, but they are taking a lot of ibogaine. And after three days under the effect of ibogaine, they, they declare that the patient, that the patient, no, the, the, that the, the teenager is not a teenager anymore, is an adult, and he starts uh, participation in adult activities. But as they, uh, as they see uh, that ibogaine is the uh, uh, a sac sacred plant, they use in the day by day for everything. 
uh, so when they have a, a hurt in the a wound in, in in the skin, they take a little uh, amount of the, the the leaves and they use as a a curative in, in the wound. If they have stomach ache, they eat a, a little amount of the root or a little amount of the leaves to alleviate the stomach ache. So they use it in these small amounts and they use it in small amounts too, in a micro doses to, to hunt, to go hunting because it works like cocaine works or work it to the, to the people uh, to the native people in Peru and Bolivia, the the, uh, the ancient uh, people there, they used cocaine to to go to long trips, to long trips by by foot, eh? uh, to to diminish the the hunger and to feel more energetic. Uh, people in Gabon uh, uses ibogaine in the same way to have more energy and to not to have to to bring a lot of food to go hunting. Uh, so they use in this context. Mm, that's, yeah, it's amazing. I, uh, I talked to some people who went out, traveled out uh, and observed and even did some Bwiti ceremonies. And one method that uh, uh, a friend experienced said, like they start with a, a little spoon of Iboga, like in the rainforest, this is Gabon, Bwiti tribe. And then they do a few days of ritual. So they're like cleansing, preparing for the big dose. And then it's like initiation night. You get, you keep getting fed Iboga until you purge sometimes in some traditions and visions come yes. on and they're still increasing the dose. It's like a 18 hour trip, but then there's, they're given a name, like it's called your combo. Um, and then like one more spoon for a ceremony, that's your rebirth, your like formal initiation, dancing, music. And then when it's done, um, the Iboga, the vision, the journey is like your lighthouse guiding you through life. And once you integrate the message of your combo, your new Bwiti name into your life, the, your initiation is complete, but that part can take years. Like you might've done a, a few day journey, but then um, the formal initiation um, or integration might take a while after that. I found that kind of fascinating comparing to how we think about integration here and the work that's after the trip. Exactly. And I think that I, I think that I think it's interesting to, to talk about is that the difference between Iboga and Ibogaine, because Iboga, the, the traditional preparation, has the interage effect that it's not it's not only ibogaine there. Yeah. There are other alkaloids that are mixed and they get the entourage effect. Yeah. And what we use here in the medical context is pure ibogaine. It's a medicine that is produced under the good manufacturing practice. Because as I mentioned it in the beginning, we respect the use of traditional iboga. It's very fine. Oh, yeah. They know a lot of it, but we cannot use it in the medical context. So we use ibogaine, the poor ibogaine. Yeah. yeah. That's a... Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you shared the indigenous use because, uh, you know, the, the rites of passage, like the one you described is something I think that we are missing sadly in the Western world in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's always, it's, I have a reverence for the use of psychedelics in, in uh, all these different places in the ancient world. 
um, for those purposes, for ceremony, but, but rites of passage in particular. It's really moving to me. Exactly. And they know the traditional healers, they know a lot about it. Maybe they know, they know a lot more than we know, but that's the way that it, it's possible to, to work here. Because here, I, I mean, in the Western world, because other ways will not be recognized and people will have less access to the medicine if we don't uh, feel in the in the way that these uh, health regulators want us to, to fit, in the trail that they want right. us to fit. Right. Yep. Yeah. We have to act within the constraints that exist so that we can do this work. It's, it's, it's insane to me that something like Ibogaine that uh, no one would want to take for fun, as we were describing, would yeah. be a Schedule One substance, right? It's not something people are going to abuse. Uh, and that used, in, as you've described, Bruno, in the correct um, medical setting, with all the attention that you're giving to those important details, it's an incredible medicine. Is there anything that you want to share with our audience that you haven't had a chance to share that um, you think might be interesting for them to know about Ibogaine. Yes, I want only to reinforce that saying that it's safe to do Ibogaine. It's very, you can have very important benefits from it since you use it in the proper protocol, following the proper protocol. For everything in life, we need to follow protocols. To drive, we need to follow a lot of protocols that we follow automatically. We don't even remember that we are doing it, but buckling mm -hmm. the, the seat belts and driving the way that's right to drive, paying attention to the traffic, things like that. To use Ibogaine is the same thing. You must follow some medical protocols to be safe. And doing that, it's safe to do, and it's a lot more unsafe to do heroin, for example, than to do oh. ibogaine. So this uh, this fear of ibogaine, uh, I want to to slowly with my work, with our work here in Brazil. I'm not working alone. There's a lot of people working with me. With me, we want to show to people that it's okay to do it if you do it the the right way. Uh, if you will jump from a plane. With the parachute, you, you, you follow a lot of protocols and you will take some medicines. We follow a lot of protocols. So when we take ibogaine, we must follow the protocol. It's not, if you have a, 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 a gallbladder uh, problem, for example, a calculus in the gallbladder, we, you won't make a surgery in your friend's house, in your friend's garage with the knife that you use in the kitchen, you will look for a doctor, anesthesiologist, a surgeon to do the, it the proper way. Ibogaine, we need to do it the proper way. So it's safe to do that. The problem is that Ibogaine really works well. And sometimes people not so well prepared wants to facilitate Ibogaine treatments. And at this moment, things must may go not so, so well as planned. So uh, each one... Uh, must take care to do it uh, the way that it's meant to to be done, and it's okay to to and it's it's safe to do that. Well, thank you, Bruno. It's been fascinating and very informative. I know I've learned a lot. Uh, we'll have to 
continue our conversation and collaborations and hopefully make a trip out to visit you or, or uh, see you yes, at a conference. You are, you, you are totally invited to be here. It will be a pleasure and an honor to, to have you in Brazil. Just let me know in advance for me to prepare some, some things here <laughs> to, to have you here, but it will be a pleasure to, to have you here. Uh, and Bruno, I don't think I asked, what, what's the name of the hospital that, where you work? We, the name of the hospital, we, we, I live in a city, a small city called Ourinhos. It's near Sao Paulo. And the hospital, the name of the hospital is Santa Casa de Ourinhos. It means Holy, Holy House of Ourinhos because it was a hospital that in the past was run by uh, priests and nurses, priest nurses. Mm -hmm. So right. uh, it's the, the Santa Casa. It's a public hospital. It's a philanthropic hospital. But when we talk it with them and we show it Ibogaine effects and we, they ask it, all the regulators, all the authorities, and they gained uh, confidence that we could do it legally, officially. And I'm doing this treatment for, for years with them. And... I am proud of it, and they are proud of having having this this treatment in their hospital too. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Bruno. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and hope in the future we can be together again. Right. Yeah. Take care. You too. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.